You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's March 6th. The new coronavirus, or COVID-19, has spread to at least 75 countries and infected more than 100,000 people across the globe, mostly in China. Earlier this week, a diverse group of RAND researchers weighed in on a wide range of issues related to the outbreak. And on today's episode, we're going to provide an overview of what our experts had to say about the potential trajectory of the crisis, the timeline for developing a vaccine, how U.S. households can prepare, and much more. Let's start with some insights on the status of the outbreak from Jennifer Bowie, an epidemiologist here at RAND. She said it's hard to predict when the outbreak will peak globally, but it may come in waves. And in the U.S., she expects to see more cases in the coming days. This is partly because quarantines and social distancing policies, such as travel bans and school closures, simply cannot provide 100% protection from a highly contagious virus like COVID-19. When it comes to responding to the outbreak, there are a number of challenges. For one, it's happening against the backdrop of a flu season that's still pretty active. Senior physician policy researcher Mashid Abir explained that because the symptoms of the coronavirus and the flu are so similar, health systems need to be prepared for a lot of concerned people with mild to severe symptoms showing up in emergency rooms and hospitals. These systems need to evaluate their surge plans, identify gaps, and make sure that they're ready to respond, she said. Abir also pointed out that it's been difficult for health officials to know who should be tested for the coronavirus, again because its symptoms are so similar to those of the flu. And while testing is important, she said, quote, We need to make sure we're doing both diagnosis and containment in parallel and not focusing on one at the expense of the other. And what about addressing this virus in the long term? When might a vaccine be ready? Developing a vaccine or a new treatment is a long process, said senior policy researcher Andrew Mulcahy, not to mention getting the approval to use it. He doesn't think that a coronavirus vaccine is right around the corner, even if all parties involved do everything they can to speed things along. Mulcahy also commented on some of the potential economic effects of the outbreak. For example, many prescription drugs used by patients in the U.S. are manufactured outside the U.S., particularly in Asia. So as this outbreak affects manufacturing in other countries, it can in turn disrupt the supply chain of prescription drugs in the U.S. Elizabeth Patroon Sayers' research focuses on how media shapes people's risk perceptions and health behaviors. She discussed why misinformation seems to be spreading along with the coronavirus. There are always conspiracy theories that swirl around an infectious disease, she said. In part, those theories spread because they can actually reduce anxiety. If people are looking for explanations about why the outbreak is happening or how it's spreading, then conspiracy theories can sometimes satisfy that desire and help people who believe them feel better. That's part of their appeal. Lori Usher-Pines, who studies telemedicine as well as emergency preparedness and response, said she views telemedicine as one way to aid in the response to COVID-19. Telemedicine has the potential to improve triage and help to manage scarce resources. But 
it's been slow to catch on. Rand research shows that only about 4% of the U.S. population has ever had a video medical visit, despite the fact that telemedicine has been around for a while. Usher Pines also offers a piece of advice that you can put into practice during this crisis. U.S. households, she says, would do well to follow FEMA's standard guidelines and put together an emergency kit that includes a three-day supply of food and water, medications and first aid equipment, and other emergency supplies. You can read the complete rundown of what our experts had to say on the RAND blog. Drones are reshaping the cybersecurity world in two key ways. First, drones present a new kind of critical cybersecurity target. And second, drones could become cyber weapons in the hands of adversaries. A new RAND report analyzes both types of threats, focusing on considerations for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. The report looks at real-world scenarios to better understand these threats. For example, if drones used by U.S. Customs and Border Protection were compromised, the agency could lose intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities, creating blind spots in the detection of smuggling or other nefarious activities at borders and ports. Or consider FEMA drones. If these were compromised, it could make it harder to help people in peril or medical distress in disaster zones. The authors of the report suggest that the cyber risks introduced by the rise of drones are overall not widely understood. This is why it's important for DHS to continue to work toward developing a coherent strategy to mitigate these issues. RAND engineer Anu Narayanan studies critical infrastructure and national security. Her latest research focuses on the vulnerabilities of the U.S. power grid. In a new Q&A on the RAND blog, she explains this study and outlines the wide range of threats and hazards facing the power grid. First, the grid is becoming more automated, she says. This can create more potential weak spots for attackers to target. And at the same time, there are more climate-related effects, natural disasters, and ongoing issues that stem from human error and from aging infrastructure. When asked what made her focus on this area, Narayanan said that she's always been interested in how ubiquitous electricity is. Quote, it's everywhere, all the time, and we've made ourselves so inextricably linked to this asset that if we lose it, life comes to a grinding halt. We assume the lights will work when we want them to, but what happens if they don't? Now, on to something we've discussed several times on this show, truth decay. It's the term RAND experts use to describe the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. The media plays a dual role in this phenomenon. News organizations can combat truth decay by promoting facts and analysis, but they can also intensify the problem. At a recent event at our headquarters in Santa Monica, California, RAND leaders and media experts came together to discuss this topic. Here's Jennifer Cavanaugh, who leads RAND's research on truth decay, explaining some of the biggest recent changes in the media landscape and how they've contributed to truth decay. There are these incentives to um, provide people what they want. And so in providing people what they want, providing niche news or stories that are exaggerated or that are intended to stir up these emotions... Uh, it just ends up kind of feeding that. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle, which is why it's so difficult to break. 
um, the changes in the economic landscape of the media um, are really profound. Um, and so they play a huge role in this. You can't really talk about uh, the changes in, in media or the ways in which um, media uh, and, uh, and people's attitudes contribute to polarization without talking about the economics. So what can media organizations do to overcome these hurdles, to help fight truth decay, and ultimately to restore faith in facts? The panelists touched on a few ideas, including exploring new forms of storytelling and making better use of both video and data in reporting. Notably, Kavanaugh adds that we also have to focus on news consumers, not just the media outlets themselves. Here she is again. Our research really suggests that it is a two-way street. It's both people's consumption decisions and media um, economic incentives and production uh, decisions that feed into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a solution has to tackle both pieces. You can find a complete recap of this event, including a video, on the RAND blog. It's been a little more than a month since the UK left the European Union. It may be tempting to think that Brexit is now over, But this is only the end of the beginning, say RAND experts. In fact, negotiations over a long-term political and economic deal between the UK and the EU began just this week. As these talks play out, uncertainty about the final deal could have big costs for the UK. By the end of 2020, the United Kingdom's GDP could decrease by 4.4 billion pounds, according to RAND research. These costs will continue to accrue over time, and if the renegotiation period lasts longer, UK GDP could be reduced by a further £11 billion in 2025. What's behind these potential losses? Until a final deal is reached, UK-based companies could hold back on introducing new product lines for continental and overseas markets, or they may decide to leave export markets altogether. Furthermore, uncertainty around the deal may also negatively influence foreign direct investment in the UK. Our experts call this a classic investment challenge. The mere fact that there are costs is not reason enough for the UK to race to get a deal. But the UK will need to weigh these potential short-term costs versus the potential negative long-term economic implications of an agreement that is made quickly but that doesn't add up to a broad and deep UK-EU trading relationship in the future. RAND is a non-profit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. See you next week.